Justin Moffat's my name, the Senior Minister of the Parish, which includes St Philip's, as you've been hearing today with the various members. And uh, from my family to yours, from the staff of Church Hill and uh, the Parish Council, uh, we hope this season leading up to Christmas brings you joy and peace and challenge and something fresh from God. That's my prayer for you now. There is a paradox at the heart of the Christmas story, indeed the whole Christian message. And I find that when people get the paradox, they get God. When they get the paradox, they get God. And that's when, for many people, the door opens and the lights go on in the heart. True for me. Some then go on to become followers of Jesus. Either for the first time they find themselves on a new course or they rekindle an old faith, they find themselves back on course. Three questions then to guide our afternoon as a reflection on Christmas. One, what is the paradox at the heart of Christmas? Two, why do people believe it? Because they do. And three, what difference would it make if I did? Firstly, what is the paradox at the heart of Christmas? Adults know what a do, do adults know what a paradox is? I presume you do. A paradox, of course, is a statement that looks absurd or contradictory, which, when investigated, may prove to be well-founded or true. The paradox at the heart of Christianity is simple but profound, and I believe from God. And it's this that this supremely humble birth opens for us the one who is supremely great. That this moment of profound helplessness, baby, manger, vulnerable parents, opens for us the one who is supremely effective, God saves lives. That this one born under Roman oppression opens for us supreme liberation. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. That this one who eternally lives must die in order to give me eternal life. That this humble Jesus gives me the great God. Now, I could go on. I won't go on. I could go on. Perhaps it's not a stretch to say, as we've been saying throughout Advent, that Jesus is the greatest of all time, but with a twist. What, after all, are the birth narratives of Jesus other than supreme hope embedded in a very humble moment. A teenage woman with what looks like a dubious story about her pregnancy, an unknown descendant of King David, who takes her to be his wife, a bit like finding out that a, that a Romanoff is renting the flat upstairs, is Joseph. A move then from Nazareth to our little town of Bethlehem because the currents of the Roman Empire wash you up there. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given then and today. If today ye come ye to Bethlehem by faith, you'll find there a room out back because the rest of the house is overcrowded. There'll be a feeding trough in the room and a baby lying in a manger, a helpless baby. 
and some strange working-class visitors, shepherds, and later some stargazers from the east, all apparently unrelated to a busy urban Sydney life. And yet God, I, God is behind it all, all very humble. And yet in the middle of the story of Christmas are words of greatness. To Mary, he will become great. To the shepherds, a message from God, from the angels. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the King, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that the Messiah has arrived. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Can you see the paradox? What is God communicating? There is a very ancient Anglican prayer that we say during Advent that gets the paradox perfectly right. It speaks of Jesus as coming in great humility and glorious majesty. Great humility, glorious majesty. Now, none of this was plucked out of thin air by Jesus or by clever marketers in the first century or, my favourite, monks in the third century that just wanted to control people. None of it. Our Old Testament readings this afternoon prove it. All those Old Testament readings, the two of them, Isaiah and Micah, both predate Jesus, both found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which means they predate Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus, for to us a child is born, great humility, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, that child, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and he will reign forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see it? Great humility, glorious majesty. And yet the child is to be born in little Bethlehem some 500 years before Jesus was born. Those words that David read out to us on the screen, but you, Bethlehem, though you, addressing a city, a little town, a little town, you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Great humility, glorious majesty. This is the paradox. First question. Second question. Why do people believe it? Because we do. I just want you to know that. Lots of us in the room believe, not just at Christmas, but all year round. We do it despite, maybe because of its strangeness. We follow Jesus, who said... The first shall be last, and the last first. Jesus was no stranger to paradox. I do wonder if Jesus is first speaking about himself here. Jesus, who also said, whoever wants to become great must become the slave of all, and proves it himself. We follow Jesus, and we do so when we're told we're idiots. We do so when we're told to get with the program. We do so when it costs. We do so when I have to change what I personally would prefer to believe. Historically, Christians would rather die than give up their faith. Now, why? And the answer is because we see God in the Christmas story, and then we get God in the Easter story. Listen to God through the prophets. Isaiah 45, again, hundreds of years before Jesus, 
God says through the prophet, he says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. By the way, you've made it, it's Australia. For I am God and there is no other. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me, every knee will bow, by me, every tongue will swear or acknowledge. That's God, to the prophet. Now listen to Paul reflecting on the life of Jesus. In Philippians 2, Dan read that up to us a moment ago. Of Jesus, therefore, we'll find out why the therefore is there in a moment. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That's Isaiah. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, the whole realm of human existence, and every tongue acknowledge, that's Isaiah, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what's happening? You see that connection? That which belongs to God in the prophet Isaiah belongs to Jesus. This is greatest of all time language. He is the GOAT, G-O-A-T, which is our series during Advent and Christmas, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Of course, it's contested that Jesus is the greatest of all time. No doubt that's contested. That's a fact of history, not hard to point out. Not everyone thinks that Jesus is the greatest of all time. Give you an example. Almost 100 years ago, in his 1927 essay, atheist Bertrand Russell argued why he's not a Christian. And he, to do so, he argues this. He argues, why I don't think that Christ was the best and wisest of men, people, although I grant him a very high degree of moral goodness. And Russell seeks to point out the sins of Jesus. So, not all humans agree on who is the greatest of all time. That's true in every field, in sport, in cars, in computer games, and religions. Greatest of all time, all contested, all subjective. But in Philippians chapter 2, here's the key. In Philippians chapter 2, God bestows goat language. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. This is the God of the universe's declaration on Jesus. So the, arg the argument of the New Testament goes, we're not just arguing the toss. God will have the supremacy. People will then ask naturally, do I want to serve this God? Do I want to follow Jesus? Do I want to get a God who is supreme over all things? We know about toxic power. Do I want this power from God? What if it's toxic? Do I want God inconveniently a part of my life? Will I get hurt? Philippians 2 is a famous text, not usually read at Christmas, but it is a Christmas text because it tells the story of Jesus Christ who being in being is God and how the birth of Jesus reflects the heart of God, of Jesus who being in very nature God, who in his being is God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Now, what else would you use being in nature God for? Surely to get your way. I'll tell you what else. Instead of that, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, a slave. 
being made in human likeness, there's Christmas, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and in his life became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you hear that? Let me go back. Being in nature God made himself nothing, became a slave, made in human likeness, humbled himself. Jesus in his very being God and perhaps because he is in being God is why he humbled himself. It turns out that humility is part of what it means to be God. What it is ontologically to be God is to be the humble one, capital H, capital O. Is it any wonder that we're talking about a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, not a prince in a palace in Rome, or that he achieved his great victory over sin and death by a cross and not a sword? As Bishop Robert Forsyth said this morning, noting the every knee will bow bit, we, 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 it, it bristles. He says, but it is a supremacy that crowns deep humility. This is the greatest irony of them all, that the goat should take the lowest position of all time, a slave twisted on a cross. Lastly and finally, what difference would it make if I did believe the paradox? Well, a couple of things. First, you get God. You get God, or rather God finds you. His humble birth, his humble life, his humble death is what God does to save me, to redeem me, to find me. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you, and this saviour is the Messiah, the Lord. Paul will later say, with similar language to Philippians 2, he'll say, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. First, you get God. Second, you get to be transformed. Paul says, if you're touched by God in any way, then make my joy complete by having the mind of Jesus Christ. And what is the mind of Jesus Christ? It is the mind of a great God who made all things, and his mind is to be humble, which makes sense of Paul's exhortation. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit because you want to be like God. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. We live in a selfie world, a world of my truth, of who I am determining reality, but to a follower of Jesus, I gain a new life of service, an alternative to that world. And so you get to also be, thirdly, countercultural. Philippians 2 fell, flew in the face of the Roman world in the first century, a world, a Roman world that celebrated success, fame, victory, humility was not a virtue. It meant that you lost and you were humbled, nothing good about it. But the gospel of Jesus changed all of that then and now. Historian Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, in his book, Dominion, remarks on the profound effect of this reality. Probably not Christian Tom Holland, exploring faith. He says, it is the audacity of it the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization 
to which it gave birth. That God, clothed in majesty and might, in his being should take on flesh. Now that begins to make sense of God. A paradox is when something looks contradictory, when investigated, may prove to be well-founded or true. And lastly, you get the joy of knowing that you are redeemed and waking up every morning knowing that you are forgiven. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. But make no mistake, this, is, this one is the greatest of all time. God requires that every heart prepare him room. After all, every knee will bow down, every tongue will acknowledge, but we bend to the supremely humble one, capital H, capital O. Who would prefer to die than to live without you? Amen.